0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning to you all. It's, it's such a delight to be able to step into this pulpit because I, I love the ministry of our church and I appreciate so much the ministry of Eric and Kenny and Dave and Josh, and theres no second team. Um, we're all second team, right? There's Christ see's our first team. But it's, it's a delight to be able to share in this ministry, and um, I'm just uh, very pleased and thankful to the Lord to be here today this morning. Pray that this morning is a blessing to all of us. Let's, let's pray and give our service of uh, the time of teaching into the Lord's hands, Lord. Have your way with us. We need, um, Lord, to hear from you in ways that I can't even plan. So, Lord, we just commend our Sunday morning uh, teaching time to you and pray that you would have your way with us by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're uh, continuing in our study of 1 Peter. It was written to suffering Christians all over the ancient world, and trials were growing for them. Physical, emotional, social, psychological persecution was beginning to take its toll on the Christian community. And it was a persecution that really started in earnest in 35 AD with the martyrdom of Stephen. Remember that? Acts chapter 7. There was just this virulent uh, anti-Christian attitude that dispersed the first church, which numbered in the tens of thousands, dispersed them all over... Asia Minor, and Syria, and probably North Africa, all over the place. And that persecution that began in Jerusalem in 35 AD was picked up by the Roman Empire in the middle of the first century. And of course, the the great instigator of that was Nero. And when he burned Rome and later blamed it on the Christians, you've read about that in history, no doubt. But things are really picking up. And they continued to pick up, and they continued off and on through the reign of Diocletian. In 305, that's when his reign ended. And in fact, it it wasn't until 313 AD that the official persecution of the Christians ceased. So guys, that's almost 300 years of persecution to start off with. Think of that, you know, having a persecution against the church begin with uh, the War of Independence somewhere in 1776 and still going till this day. That's a long time. But by God's grace and amazing favor, the church grew. And by the time of the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, the church numbered over six million people. It started out with the 120 in the upper room, Six million people, fully 10% of the population of the Roman Empire. And through those 300 years of suffering and growth, the letter that Peter wrote here that we're studying nurtured, strengthened, and comforted the people of God. And Peter essentially encouraged the church with a simple formula to point out to them who they were in Christ and what they had as their blessings as children of God. And this morning we're going to look at, we're going to park on chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Originally I had thought 4 through 10, but we just won't have the time to do all of that. We'll give a tip of the hat to verses 9 and 10. Beautiful verses, I'll let you read them on your own. But in these verses, 4 through 8, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of Peter, beckons us to come close, to draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ and to remember our privilege standing in Him. We're going to look at our call to draw near to Christ, the living stone who was rejected by men, but who is precious in the sight of God. Secondly, we're going to look at our call to draw near to Christ, the cornerstone of a living temple whose stones we are. And thirdly, we're going to look at our call to draw near to Christ, our stone of imputation. And we'll see what that means in in just a little bit. But let's look at that, that first point and that first verse for us, chapter 2, verse 4. It says, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Guys, we are invited to come to Jesus. And this verse displays for us the beauty The strength, the steadfastness of Jesus Christ and based on his excellent character, we are invited to draw near to him. We are invited to draw near to the Lord Jesus. Now, who are we drawing near to? And there's a couple of things that I want to point out. I feel like I'm only going to give you about 12% of what's in the text, okay? So pardon me. I'm a little frustrated. That's why I'm talking fast too. But there's a couple of things I think the Holy Spirit would have us note about Jesus beginning with a key title that Peter ascribes to the Lord. He calls him what? A stone. Now, why is that significant? What does that symbolize? Uh, What would Peter have us understand about Jesus being a stone? That's not a super familiar title that we think of giving the Lord Jesus. So what does that mean? And I think we have a few realtors in the group. And for realtors, it's always about Location, 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 right? For Bible study, it's all about context, context, context. So let's let the context tell us what this title of stone as regards the Lord Jesus means. The the Greek word lithos, you've probably heard of lithography and stuff like that. It's a a very broad term, and it's used to refer to everything from building materials to precious gems. So what what does Peter have in mind here? If you notice verses 6 and 7, and by the way, Peter draws a lot from Old Testament imagery in this passage, so you'll see that. But in verses 6 and 7, we find that this stone is not just some ordinary stone, some common rock, but it is a cornerstone. Look at verse 6. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 7, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very what? Cornerstone. The metaphor that the Lord would have us understand here is that of a special stone, a cornerstone, that is laid where? It says in Zion, right? What is Zion? Zion. That's symbolic of Jerusalem. It's it's interchangeable. Zion, Jerusalem, same thing. Peter is very clearly alluding here to the temple and specifically the massive foundation stones of the Jewish temple. And remember, this would be clear imagery for all first century Christians because at the time of the writing of this letter, this epistle, uh, the Jewish temple was still intact. It hadn't, it hadn't been destroyed. And since Peter was an apostle to the Jews first, his audience uh, had a lot of Jewish uh, element to it, so they would know, just from going up to Passover year to year, uh, they, they would know what that imagery would be like. He's, he's talking about the Jewish temple, which was, of course, the cradle of Christianity. That's where the church first met. And... Um, He's wanting them to hearken back to that image that they have of the temple, and specifically its cornerstone, its foundation stone. I've been reading quite a bit about the structure and the layout of the Jewish temple for, for this, just as this background collateral reading for this morning. And uh, as you know, the Jewish temple was destroyed in 70 AD by Titus and his legions. And the prophecy that Jesus made in Luke, excuse me, Matthew 24 that no stone would be left upon an, on another stone on the Temple Mount was literally fulfilled. Everything was pushed off the Temple Mount. So what you see today, where you see the Dome of the Rock, is the Temple Mount. And what looks like a wall of the Temple there is not a wall of a temple. It's just the retaining wall holding up the hill. It's called the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall or the Ha-Hotel in Hebrew. And when you look at that massive display of stone, which is foundational, you only see the half of it because the other half is below ground. That's how deep and big these stones are. And you can access all of them today. In fact, I was looking at one, one particular foundation stone that measured 41 feet long that would be like from the stage to the back door roughly, wouldn't it, give or take? So that's its length. It was 50, 41 feet long by 15 feet wide by 11 and a half feet tall, and it weighs somewhere between 570 and 630 tons. That's the weight of two 747 jumbo jets. So I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty massive. And Peter is drawing our attention and his reader's attention to this cornerstone and he is telling us that Jesus is like that massive cornerstone that holds the whole building together. It points to his greatness, his enduring character, his strength, his steadfast, his immovable, unshakable character. The Lord is our cornerstone, he's saying. You can build your life upon him. He is sure. He is steadfast. He's immovable. He will not be shaken. That's the idea. But notice also that we're not simply invited to embrace a foundation stone. Because uh, I will tell you something. Looking at these stones, it it was pretty impressive. But looking at them, you, you don't get like sentimental, fuzzy feelings. You don't say, man, this... This, I could give this stone a hug. I mean, it is not something you want to cuddle up to. You, you can be awed by it. You can feel small. You can feel insignificant. But it is, it is dead, cold, inanimate stone. And when we're called to draw near to Christ, he is our cornerstone, our source of strength. But we also come to a stone that is a person. It says, and coming to him. That's a third person singular masculine masculine pronoun. It's a him. It's a person. And it is to a living stone. He is alive by virtue of the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus is sure. He's steadfast. He's a rock on which we can build our life, our families, our faith. But he's also alive and personal. And furthermore, he's sympathetic to our pain. Notice that he was, what? Rejected. He suffered. And guys, we can't miss this, okay? Because you can easily gloss over that part. We can't miss this. Our foundation stone is immovable. He's alive, he's a person, but his heart is always turned towards his people in compassion and empathy. He suffered. About a year and a half ago, I taught on Isaiah 53, uh, the great messianic psalm, one of the great hymns, messianic hymns in the book of Isaiah, three of them. You remember the way that the, that chapter opens up where the prophet is incredulous. He can't believe it. He screams out, he calls out to his brethren, and he says to the Jews, who has believed our message? What he is saying is that when Messiah comes, as unbelievable as it is, Israel will not listen to him. They will not believe him. And then he uses incredibly visceral language. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. That He was so mutilated, so brutalized by the crucifixion, torture and the separation from God that you could hardly recognize him as a human being. And then he says he was despised again, and we did not esteem him. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. He was executed. John 1, 11 says that he came to his own, his brothers, his countrymen, Israel, and his own did not receive him. Christ is familiar with human suffering to the nth degree, and thus he can identify with our difficulties because he suffered to the fullest measure. Isn't it amazing when you find someone who can identify with your pain and they can say, I know exactly what you feel like. I know what it's like to lose a child. I know what it's like to lose a spouse. I know what it's like to have be foreclosed upon and you enter into that fellowship of suffering, Jesus Christ knows your suffering infinitely more than any human could. Are you lonely? Are you misunderstood? Are you rejected by your people? Are you poor? Are you oppressed? Are you despised? Jesus knows all that and more. And he was not destroyed by his suffering like we would be, but through his suffering, his character shone through. He became the cornerstone of strength and steadfast love for his people. And if I can point out just one more thing regarding Jesus in this first verse, verse 4, is that he may have been rejected by men, a man of sorrows, but he was infinitely precious and accepted to God the Father. He is precious in the sight of God. And we'll see later, just a little bit later, that this preciousness that belongs to Jesus is imputed to us. We'll look at that in a moment. But Peter's main point Here is that Jesus is like that immovable foundation that held up the Jerusalem temple complex. In fact, it's still holding up the the temple mount today. He's strong, he's immovable, he's steadfast. He's like a great mountain in his character, but he's not impersonal like a stone. In fact, he is a person, he is alive, and he is approachable like a friend and savior that he is. And so God's spirit invites us to come. Come to Jesus. In fact, that verb, coming to him, it should be translated, draw near to him. Because this is the same verb that's used throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to speak of priests in association with priests when they're called to draw near to God, either to hear him speak or to do temple service. We are called to draw near to Jesus. We are invited to draw near. And listen, this is clearly an open invitation for salvation. If you hear the Spirit telling you, draw near. If you feel Jesus tugging at your heart, come near. You come, you come, because he can make you clean. He can give you a whole new life, a brand new start. He can save you for heaven and for eternity. That said, and here's the point of verses 4 and 6. This is the main point. This is equally, guys, an invitation for all believers, especially those who are suffering, to continually come to Christ. My uh, New American Standard has this present participle uh, translated just pitch on. It says, and coming to Him. This picture's an ongoing coming, doesn't it? a returning over and over and over and over again. Listen, we come to Jesus for salvation at a point in time, right? We say, yes, I want cleansing from my sin. I want to know I'm going to heaven. I want to be with God for eternity. And we turn to Christ at a point in time in faith and we're saved once for all. But, guys, we need to continually come to Jesus. We need to draw near for worship, for fellowship, for comfort, for strength, for intimacy with our Savior, for transformation. We need, I need, to be revived, renewed, refreshed by Jesus all the time. All the time. Through His Word and through prayer and through fellowship. I need to draw near to Him constantly. This is akin to what happens to us in marriage, right? When we marry our spouse, we come to the altar once. You don't have to repeat the ceremony every week. We'd be broke anyway within two months. One month. You know, we come to the altar once, and what happens after the ceremony's done and the preacher waves his hands and says, you guys are now man and wife. Do you turn to your wife or your husband and you say, thank you very much. It was a lovely wedding. It really was. Mazel tov. Now, hopefully, maybe I'll run into you at Costco or something sometime. No, you come to the altar, and then you go back every day. And you build a relationship, and you build a life together. That's what it looks like with Jesus. We come to Him for salvation, and He saves us. He never turns away. But we need to come to Him, draw near to Him all the time. And that's why we're exhorted in the New Testament to draw near. Hebrews 4.16 Therefore, let us draw near. Same word used in 1 Peter 2.4 Draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that you may, find, you may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 10.22 Let us draw near with a sincere heart full of confidence of faith. We need to come near. We need to draw near. The door is wide open and the Spirit invites us to come to draw near to him, to Jesus. I may have told you the story, so if I have, please forgive me, but my youngest, my my Aaron, who is now at UC Berkeley, he's a junior there, he was my little guy that didn't care for doors. I, I had my office at home, still do, but he would often, almost on a daily basis, just bust into my office unnoticed. On, on, you know, it's not like, hey, Dad, I'm coming. Or, Dad, you there? Okay, I'm coming. He would bust through the door and be panting at my door, going, because eh, 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 little boys don't walk anywhere. They just run everywhere. <laughs> and, and I would look at him, and I'd go, hey, buddy, what's up? What do you want? He goes, eh, I, I don't know. <laughs> and then I would say, well, come close. Can I come up here. And he would walk up to me and he would crawl into my lap and show me his boo-boo or, or talk to me about his favorite color, whatever passed through his mind, his little tiny mind. And you know what? I love that. I love that he had that freedom in that open access. That's what we have. And Jesus bids us come. The Spirit bids us come. And guys, we need to avail ourselves of this invitation because I will tell you something. We, we run to things. We are drawn to things for comfort, for affirmation, for value. Especially when things get hard, when you know, our key relationships run through a, a rough patch, or when we're suffering for our faith or when we experience temptation, you know who, what? Where do we run to? When our tank is low, who or what do we draw near to fill us up? Is it food? Is it leisure, pleasure, work, another person? Ultimately, guys, there's only one person who can satisfy us, right? He who believes in him will not be disappointed. We need to draw near to Jesus. Secondly, we're invited to come to Christ, the cornerstone of a living temple, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now think back to who Peter is writing to, right? Think back to chapter one, think of that first paragraph, that first verse. He's writing to whom? To those who reside as aliens, right? Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Peter is writing to comfort the Christian diaspora who had been dispersed all over the world because of persecution. Many of whom had lost their livelihoods, their homes, their possessions, and increasingly their lives because of persecution. And Peter says here, you've lost everything. You're homeless. You're living out in the open, but know, know this, realize this, that you're part of a living structure, a better temple, where you, by virtue of your union with Christ, are alive with his life. And God is using you as a brick, as it were, to build a new temple that will not be destroyed, and where you, will offer, sac- where you offer sacrifices to God that are acceptable in his sight. You belong to a new and better spiritual temple. You remember um, some of the limitations with the Old Testament temple, right? There, was, there were some people that could not enter the temple. For instance, if, if you were a eunuch, you couldn't enter. If uh, you were a Moabite, an Amorite, you couldn't enter the temple. If you were of illegitimate birth by their law, by Jewish law, you couldn't enter the temple. And then if you were a Gentile and a convert to Judaism and let's say you were the most fervent worshiper in Israel where you put King David to shame you, you just were a lover of Yahweh how far could you go into the temple? Court of the Gentiles. It's like concentric uh, rectangles leading up to the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies. But being a Gentile, you could only go in that big court and you were put over there in the little corner, farthest corner away from the rest of the people that was for lepers. You could kind of hang out with them maybe. And then if you were a little bit more blessed by being a Jewish woman, you could enter the court of women. But you couldn't enter the court of Israel, which was for men only. And the men could not enter the court of the priests because that was only for priests who were doing ministry. And the priests themselves couldn't enter into the holy place because that was only by law to offer burnt offerings or incense. And even there, they couldn't enter the holy of holies because that was only for the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur to atone for the sins of Israel. So the old temple, God said, limitations, limitations, limitations. No, no, no. And remember David... King David, how much he wanted to build a temple for the Lord, 2 Samuel 7. I mean, he loved Yahweh. He worshipped the God of Israel. He was not ashamed to be seen as a fool for him. He loved God so much. And the crowning achievement of his life would have been to build a temple for God. And he told God, I want to build a temple. And what did God say? No. You can't build my temple because you're a man of bloodshed. First Chronicles 23, 28, 3. So to the most fervent worshiper, God said no. To certain people, God said no. You can't enter my temple. You can't build my temple. No, you can only go so far. Limitation, limitation, limitation. Do you realize what God is saying here? He's saying you are my temple. You, my temple. People, Those of you who share the life of Christ, who are endowed with the Holy Spirit, you are my temple. That's why in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 23, we are told that the the Trinity, the, the resident Godhead, comes in to live within us. And here, he's using a little bit different metaphor that he uses in other places. But here we are living stones connected to the living cornerstone who are being built up as a a temple to offer sacrifices to God that he loves. They may have been scattered. They may have been part of the, the unwanted. But they were God's temple, God's priests. God metaphorically, guys, is taking us and building a temple out of us. Sounds weird, but also precious. We're like, like spiritual Legos. <laughs> God is positioning us. He's putting us in place. He's connecting us. He's integrating us to other believers in the church so that we can produce spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to him. And let me explain something here because I think there's a little bit of confusion if I don't. When he says spiritual, he does not mean immaterial because you and I are material people. We're made out of flesh and blood, right? We we don't relate just to spiritual. We're not immaterial people. What he means by spiritual sacrifices is that which is influenced or dominated by the Holy Spirit who indwells us. God is building a temple that is infused with the life of Christ in the very stones and those stones also have the indwelling spirit and in, these stones, you and I are also priests who perform sacrifices to God that he's pleased with. And guys, let me tell you something. This changes the meaning of everything. It gives value. It gives enduring meaning to everything that we do for the Lord, especially within the context of the Christian community. See, I, I'm connected to you. You're connected to me. We have the life of Christ in us. And we have the Spirit of God that that dominates and produces gifts for the church, works for the church. It's similar to John 15. Remember what Eric taught us about the, the vine and the branches? That the vine is what has life, and when you graft the branch into the vine, the very the sap, the water, the, the life-giving nutrients flow from the vine into the branch, and that branch will push out little buds and leaves and fruit. And that fruit is literally the, the, the evidence of the life in the branch that comes from the vine. Here the livingness is in stones that are being built up, that share the life of Christ together and have the indwelling Holy Spirit. That gives meaning and enduring value to everything we do. When our guys our setup guys show up on Sunday morning hauling that truckload of stuff, the equipment here, usually with one or two little guys in tow. That's a spiritual sacrifice that God says, Ah. That's that's flowing with the life of my son. That's empowered by the Holy Spirit. That that is a sweet aroma to me. When our team, our sound team, works back there. Uh, out of sight with nobody noticing, God sees. And them making it possible for us to hear worship and to appreciate worship and to hear the word taught, God sees that and he says, that's an acceptable sacrifice to me. When someone volunteers to hold the babies in the nursery or teach those five-year-olds, six-year-olds their Sunday school lesson, their Bible lesson, so that the parents and adults can worship God together, God says that's an acceptable, satisfactory offering. I had to put in a plug for my wife, you know that. We have what, 50, 50 volunteers that work with children. We need more. You guys are just baby machines. You know, when Eric preaches the Word, when he proclaims the Gospel, God is satisfied with that. It's enduring. When elders serve our church through leadership, when deacons bless us with, with their prayer and the gifts of administration and works of service, God says, that is like an aroma of life in Jesus and the Holy Spirit to me. I accept it. I love it. He delights in it. When believers perform every small or great act of service, motivated by the life of Christ in them, dependent on the Holy Spirit, those are spiritual sacrifices to God that bring Him pleasure. So we are to draw near to Christ, the living stone rejected by men, but precious in the sight of God. We are to draw near to Christ, the cornerstone of a living temple whose stones we are. And thirdly, lastly, we are to draw near to Christ, our stone of imputation, and I'll explain that in a minute, but also a block of stumbling to the unbelieving world. In verses 7 and 8, we got this stone of imputation and stumbling. One of the things that Peter does in this text, you'll see it repeatedly, is he uses contrast. He says, this is the, the life of believing. This is the consequences of unbelieving. This is what it was like in the ceremonial system. This is what we have now in the Lord Jesus So he uses contrast a lot, and he borrows, as I said, from the Old Testament quite a bit, the ceremonial system. But you gotta remember, again, who Peter was writing to. He was writing to people who were suffering for their faith, and so they were considered throwaway people. They had no value or little value. That's why they were persecuted so savagely to the point where Nero, for example, would take people alive, time to a post, Pitch them with tar and line them on fire to be torches for his garden parties. Just sick. People were put in the, the, the hides of wild animals so that, and then thrown to the lions. People by the thousands were crucified, the most horrible way to die. They were throwaway people. And when a believer is persecuted for his or for her faith, you, you don't have to be tied to the stake to feel the sting of rejection, right? When we are rejected, when we are marginalized and we suffer for Christ, it's not easy. I mean, nobody likes that. Being a faithful Christian, facing the opposition of the world, hearing the ridicule and the mocking of the world against our Lord, against our values, whether that comes from work or in the context of school, or from unbelieving friends or unbelieving families, or from just watching the evening news. It's easy to be, to feel estranged, to feel like an outsider. Nobody likes that. Christians, guys, have been viewed as the offscarring of the world forever. We're often considered the unenlightened, the ignorant, the out of touch, the uncool. We're charged to be bigots and haters and sexists because of our values. We're called dogmatists and absolutists. And yes, I'll take that one. I am a, an absolutist. I believe in absolute truth. But that's, that's despised in the world. That's taboo to the world. You know, Obi-Wan tells Anakin, only a Sith deals in absolutes. <laughs> Thank you, George Lucas. Yeah, I pay good money to be entertained, and I get slapped without prattle. In other words, only the most evil and stupid people believe in the absolutes. Take those, those Christians, for example. Christians have been the butt of literature since the invention of ink. We're the outcasts to the world. But watch this. Let me show you something really, really amazing. This, for me, is so joy-producing. In verse 7, we see the word precious. See that? We find it again, or first in verse 4, where it says, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. We see it in verse 6 Behold, I lay in Zion a a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And again, we find it here in verse verse 7. And this is, of course, in reference to whom? To what person? Who is precious? Jesus, right? Jesus is a choice and precious cornerstone. He is choice and precious in the sight of God. In other words, Jesus, the Son, God the Son, is of inestimable value to the Father. He is precious to the Father. Jesus is closest to the Father's affections. He is the focal point of the Father's delight. The Father loves the Son, right? Now watch this. Look at verse 7 again. This precious value, the the precious value of Jesus Christ, the, the value that he is to the Father, this precious value then is for you who believe. And that's an excellent translation. It's for you and I. For believers in Jesus who share his life and are set apart and energized by his spirit. We have the preciousness the value of Jesus Christ imputed or accounted to us. Commenting on this very verse, 1 Peter 2.7, the late great New Testament scholar Kenneth Weist wrote this, He, Jesus, becomes our preciousness in the eyes of the Father as He becomes our righteousness before the law. The Son dwells in the bosom of the Father, closest to the Father's affections. Marvelous grace that we sinners, saved by grace, are brought into that favored place closest to the Father's affections. And here's the point the Father loves us as much as he loves his only begotten Son. Crazy. Crazy love. Then Morrison wrote it, God made it up. Crazy love. And then he says this by way of application what a pillow. (laughs) I love that. What a pillow on which to rest our weary hearts when going through testing. God loves us with the same passion with which he loves his son. We may be rejected. We may be the off-scouring, but in him we are infinitely embraced by the perfect love of God. Let your mind think of that when you drift off to sleep tonight. Jesus is our stone of imputation. We have been accounted his preciousness. That's how God sees us. As valuable, as precious as his own son. To Jesus he is our stone of imputation, but to the unbelieving world he is what? A stumbling block. Peter continues this contrast. He says there are basically two types of people in the world. Those who believe and those who do not believe. Those who cling to God's precious cornerstone through faith in his gospel work and receive forgiveness of sins, receive heaven, receive adoption, receive preciousness of Christ and then there's those who do not believe, who reject God's cornerstone, for whom the rock of salvation then becomes a rock of stumbling and judgment. Look at these two hard verses, seven and eight. This precious value then is for you who believe. Here's the contrast. But for you who disbelieve, for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Verse eight, a stone of stumbling. That is a rock that you don't see on the road, and you're walking by, and you just cream your foot on it, and you fall forward, and you stumble. That's what this means: a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense. Literally, the Greek word is scandalon. What does that sound like? Scandalous, right? Or scandal. Jesus and the gospel scandalize people, right? Because it is so unlike the way we naturally believe and the, not, the way we naturally behave. It is scandalous to people. It says, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were appointed. There are many people, guys, the majority of the world, for whom the gospel is offensive, and they stumble over the message, they stumble over the person. And even though Peter is quoting Isaiah eight fourteen here, he's speaking of all unbelieving people, not just unbelieving Jewish people. The gospel sounds unbelievable. It sounds crazy. It sounds offensive to people. A suffering Messiah? A dead Messiah? Are you kidding me? What do you mean Jesus died for my sins? I'm a good person. I'm a nice guy. I'm a mensch. Everybody likes it. what do you want? what do you mean Jesus died for mice what do you mean I'm a sinner How do you expect me to believe in a god that sends my loved ones to hell because they don't believe in him That's crazy I could never love or worship a god like that it's offensive That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 123 said but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness Not all people aggressively oppose the gospel or verbalize their opposition to the gospel. But if they hear the message through, it'll either be a rock of salvation or a rock of stumbling. Now, I've shared the gospel with many people, Jews and Gentiles. And some people, quite a few of them, increasingly I would say, especially Jewish people, will stop me somewhere in the middle of my presentation, either in deference to me or because they want to avoid the, the, the awkwardness of the conversation. But they'll say, wait, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You need to understand something, your pal. I'm not anti-Jesus. In fact, I believe Jesus was a good man. He was a good moral teacher you ever hear hear anything like that? He wasn't a bad guy. I like Jesus as far as he went. It sounds cordial. Sounds nice. But what's wrong with that? Let me show you where that conclusion just doesn't work. You want to know why it doesn't work, plain and simple? It's because Jesus didn't leave us that option. He didn't leave us the option of I'm a good moral teacher, take me or leave me. You know, um, Jesus made a lot of claims, right? Probably the most audacious and controversial claim that he made was that he was what? He was God. He claimed to be God repeatedly. You read the Gospel of John and underline all the direct and indirect times he references to be God, deity, it's overwhelming. That's what he claimed. In fact, the whole thrust of the purpose of the book of John, John 20, 31, is to let people know that Jesus is God and they need to embrace him as Savior too. For example, in John chapter 10, Jesus was having a discussion, really more of a lecture with the religious leaders. And he was telling them how he could keep those who believed in him, how he could protect their souls, how he could give them eternal life, which are all what? Divine prerogatives, right? Right? And those who were, most of them were squirming in their seats with discomfort. There was a few that were fuming with disgust. And then as Jesus gets to the end of this lecture, he drops this bomb on him. John 10, 30. He says, I and the Father are one. Boom. In other words, Jesus says, God and I are equals. You say, well, did the Jews understand that that's what his claim was? Listen to these verses that follow. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They tried this before. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered and said to him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be whom? God. Jesus made many claims to de- He claimed to be, be able to forgive sins. Matthew 9, the paralytic. Remember that story? This paralytic was brought by his friends to, to Jesus, but the house was too full of people. They couldn't get near him, so they went up to the roof, dug a hole through the thatch, and lowered the man to Jesus, in front of Jesus. That would kind of interrupt the, the speech. And Jesus turned, seeing their faith, he turned to this young man and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven you interesting, the scribes that were all around him, it says that they were reasoning within themselves and they said this fellow blasphemes because who can, who can forgive sins but God and Jesus knowing what they were thinking says why, why are you reasoning these thoughts in your head, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say take up your pallet, stand up and go home but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, young man, pick up your pallet and go home. It says he picked up his pallet and he moved out right in front of everybody, excuse me, the crowded room, and he went home glorifying God. Jesus claimed to forgive sins. He also claimed to his men this, pretty bold statement, John 14, 6. Jesus said to Thomas, to him, I am the way, you know this one, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I'm the only way, the truth, and way to heaven. Nobody approaches God except through me. Now you take those claims, and you take others, and there are only three possibilities as to the identity, identity of a man who makes those claims, right? That, this is what C.S. Lewis wrote about. The first possibility is is that a man who makes such claims is a liar. A big, fat liar. And not just any liar, but the most pernicious, evil, hypocritical kind of liar because he is beckoning people to trust him for their eternal well-being, for forgiveness of sins, when he knows very well that he cannot deliver on those promises. That, that's a megalomaniac. That's just... Pure evil. And unfortunately, there's been many examples of people like that throughout history, right? People are willing to distort and and manipulate and lie to people for power, for money, for sex, whatever. And no, in other words, he was, that the first possibility, he was a maniacal liar. An epic liar or of epic proportions because billions with a B have entrusted their well-being to his words, to his lies. So he could be a liar. The second possibility is that Jesus, given what he said, was simply insane. He was a loon. He was a meshuganah. He was crazy, as C.S. Lewis said, on the same level with a man that believes he is a poached egg. He's crazy. I mean, you would have to be seriously deluded, Right? To believe what Jesus claimed and not for that not to be true. But, guys, when you look at the totality of his teachings and the beauty of his person and the stability of his life and the power of his words, words that have healed the moral wounds of billions of people, teachings that have motivated countless men and women like our own people, like Holly who have left the comfort of home and hearth and traveled at the risk of their own lives to live in abject poverty so that they can have the opportunity of telling people his name, though they have not heard it before. Just for the opportunity to tell people that Jesus saves and that he can give you a new life and he can make you whole and he can make you clean. Billions have been impacted by those words. And these people are not just impacted psychologically, they are changed. So that they go out and produce amazing works of selfless love in Jesus' name. And the the fruit of his ministry, the people that it has changed, the message that they preach, have produced countless thousands, tens of thousands of schools, orphanages, hospitals, agencies of mercy throughout the world. May I suggest to you that that kind of fruit, that kind of change, that kind of power cannot come from a dis- unstable person, from a liar or a madman. Impossible. 2,000 years of this kind of ministry. And so we're left with only one more option regarding Jesus of Nazareth. That is that he is who he claimed to be. He's Lord, he's God, he's Savior. And he delivers on his promises. And as sweet as that sounds to us who believe, it is a stumbling block to all who refuse to believe, right? Because of its exclusivity and its affront on human pride and love for sin. And so the rock of salvation becomes to the unbelieving world a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. Hard words. But they show the egregious nature of the rejecting the gospel. To disbelieve is to disobey because God commands men to believe the gospel and when they don't, that's disobedience. You know, men think that they can do enough good things to get okay with God, right? The unbelieving generation in Jesus' day asks Jesus, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? In other words, just tell me what to do, I can do it. I know how to ride a bike, I can get even with God. And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Those who reject Christ reject his message of good news. They disbelieve the gospel because of their unbelief and disobedience and they are doomed to judgment because of it. And someone will say, yeah, but would God really condemn men for not believing? Just a note here, guys, disbelieving is disobedience. It's part of all the same, you know, tangled twine. They perpetuate each other, but there, there's something to be said here for the verb tenses. The three key verbs here are all in the present tense. That means they continue disbelieving. Oh, when, I, I can't believe because of the resurrection. I've heard that a lot. No, I can't believe because I don't think God could become a man. Oh, I don't believe. They continue disbelieving. They continue stumbling, tripping over the person of Christ or the message. They continue disobeying. They embrace their sin rather than turn to Christ. That's their mindset. That's their lifestyle. It continues from this life to the next. And because God is a just judge, He judges them through the stone of stumbling on judgment day. And there is a judgment day coming, guys. It's real, it has been set, it's on God's calendar. Paul told the Athenians, Acts 17, 31, that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the living, he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. And until that day comes, God graciously is pleading with men to avoid that end. He's say, no, here's the good news. I know you don't believe. I know you disobey. I know you stumble. Here's the good news. Hear it again. And so, guys, it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Will you experience him as gospel or law? As salvation or disaster? Or as one commentator put it, it is the faith of individual men that decides whether Christ the stone has a vital life-giving or fatal, life taking effect. And so I plead with you, like Paul did. I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That day is coming. Now, in verses 9 and 10, we don't have time to deal with them. So let me just mention what they are real quick. Peter sets the contrast again that's the end of the unbelieving, but for us, we get a plethora, a cornucopia of God's blessing. And basically, He tells us in in verse 9 that God has done many wonderful things for us. His excellencies, proclaim His excellencies, means literally proclaim the great things God has done for you. And he tells us in verse 10 that He has had great mercy on us. And now He tells us to go tell people of the mercy and the great things God has done for us. It reminded me of the story of the demoniac in Mark chapter 9. Chapter 5, excuse me. Remember the, the man who was possessed by who knows how many demons? The demon identified himself as legion, which a legion, a Roman legion at the time had 6,000 people, soldiers. So this man was possessed by multiple demons, and he, they had him living in the tombs with the dead and living like a recluse, completely naked. And he would take stones and beat himself with the stones, and they would send him screaming into the night air in abject misery, just torturous. And when Jesus came to his city, it was the the area of the Cyrenes on the eastern eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus stepped outside of the boat, remember the demon-possessed man rushed Jesus, and he said, what are you doing here to judge us, basically, before the Day of Judgment? They they know that day's coming. I don't know if you remember the story, but there was a herd of swine nearby and the demons requested to be let go and into the swine. And Jesus said, go ahead, do it. And they rushed headlong into the Lake of Galilee and they perished. But the man was delivered. And those who were watching went to tell all their neighbors and they came back as a mob. And they said they found the former demoniac who would rip the chains up. Nobody could subdue him. He was so violent. They found the former naked, crazy demoniac, it says, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, and in his right mind. Isn't that a beautiful picture of what Jesus does to people? Broken people? And the crowd that came out to see this for themselves, you would think that they would say, God be praised. The kingdom of God has come with us. It's among us. The king is here. Let's worship him. What did they say? They basically said, Jesus, get out of town. You're bad for business. We're growing pigs here. Get out. And Jesus said to them, like he said to the demons, okay, I'll, I'll acquiesce your, your request. And he was getting in the boat and the former demoniac reached out to him and it says that he was imploring Jesus that he might come with him. And Jesus said this, Mark 5:19, and he did not let him. Jesus did not let him come along. But Jesus said to him, "Go home to your people and report to them what great things, what wonderful things, what excellent things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you." And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things God had done for him and everyone was amazed. People, that's our story. That's our story. You say, wait, I wasn't delivered from a ton of demons. No, but you were in the domain of darkness. You were rescued from there. You were dominated by the prince of the power of the air. What's the difference? It took a radical rescue. And now we can go, just like Peter tells us, to, out to proclaim to our people what great things Jesus has done for us and the mercy God has had on us through him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the infinite value of your word. It just seems that we are just scratching the surface. Lord, we thank you for all that you've done for us, for the immeasurable treasures that we have in Christ, including the person himself, our living cornerstone, a sure foundation to build our lives on. Lord, we thank you for having mercy on us, for taking your wrath and pouring it out, not on us, but on your Son, and for delivering us from our great sins. We thank you, Lord. Thank you again for your word. We pray that you would bless us as we fellowship the rest, the remainder of this hour and as we go our separate ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.